0: Heavenly Father, thank you for this afternoon. As we sit here, uh, from coming from different backgrounds, different stories and situations, some very dire, some very good, Lord, we ask that you would focus our hearts upon you, uh, that we would know how to live here in this city and beyond, that we would serve you, that we would know you, love you, and adore you above all things. In your name we pray, Amen. So Genesis 29 and 30, the God of the broken. We live in a broken world. Our lives are broken. I don't know all of you. I don't know all of your stories. But I know there's some hurt. There's some pain in your life like mine. So just this week alone in my own life, I I spoke with a lady who had dementia and she forgot her son's name. And just... Just the brokenness of the mind and how some of us will be there. Or we're experiencing that with our own families. I had a daughter who was sick. she's thrown up in places where I was taking her. And on me, keeping me up. That was fun. People, they're homeless and they're hungry. I was speaking to someone and they have a dying father. Talking to someone else, suffering depression and loneliness. And then I read the news, the good old news. Is it about puppies and kittens and how you can get free cotton candy every day? No, it's about the coronavirus and how it's taking people's lives, about celebrity deaths and suicides, political turmoil. I think of where my family's from in Hong Kong and just the riots and the protests there and it's making life chaotic for everybody. But I got a bit of good news yesterday. I got an email from a, an Egyptian prince who wants to give me $3 million. So that's good. Right? But the audacity to lie and send that email, just it's crazy. Junk. So we live in this broken world. And, and imagine if, if there was a place where there's none of this. There's no coronavirus. There's no protests. And it was just good that you'd be with your Creator, that you wouldn't be sick anymore, you wouldn't worry about your family, your parents getting sick, losing their mind. There's this God of this broken world who's promised to fix it, that there will come a day where there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? That you are welcome there. We are welcome there. And so as we open chapters 29 and 30, we're going to see how God functions amongst people who are desperately broken, like us, like we are. And, and what I've been doing, what we've been doing here at the Northern Collective in, in teaching through books of the Bible, is we're reading the stories and asking questions like, what does this say about you, God? What does this say about you? What does it say about me? And what am I going to do about it? That's essentially all that I'm doing. We're asking God's Word to reveal how we are to live. So here we are in chapter 29. I'm just going to read verses and teach from them. If you need a word for that, because Christians love to make up words, it's called expositional, expository preaching. It's called expository preaching. Here we go, verse 1. Then Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land of the east. I'll pause there. Who's Jacob? The story of Genesis is how God created this good world with people who would follow him and love him and know him. But they rebelled, and generation after generation, they continued to rebel. And for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see that rebellion and how God is faithful amongst that and good amongst that all. And then we meet a man named Abraham, and how God made a promise to Abraham that he would reverse this rebellion, this curse that has come upon the world. He would reverse it. And then we meet his children. And then we meet another generation. So this generation is now Jacob. We're just hearing their story, their lives, and how they, how they interacted with God and with other people. So this is Jacob. He was with his home, his family, in the previous two chapters, and he lied to his father. He, he tricked him. He deceived his father into taking what's called a birthright from his, his, his older uh, brother. And so he tricked his dad, and essentially the brother was furious and wanted to kill Jacob, so Jacob ran, and he's run to this place called Paran Aram. So here we are. Then Jacob hurried on, verse 1, Finally arriving in the land of the east, he saw a well in the distance. Three flocks of sheep and goats lay in an open field beside it, waiting to be watered. But a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. It was the custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals. Afterward, the stone would be placed back over the mouth of the well. Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, Where are you from, my friends? We are from Haran, they answered. Do you know a man named Laban, the grandson of Nahor, he asked? Yes, we do, they replied. Is he doing well? Jacob asked. Yes, he's well, they answered. Look, here comes his daughter Rachel with the flock now. Jacob said, look, it's still broad daylight, too early to round up the animals, Why don't you water the sheep and goats so they can get back out to pasture? We can't water the animals until all the flocks have arrived, they replied. Then the shepherds moved the stone from the mouth of the well, and we water all the sheep and goats. Jacob was still talking with them when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. And because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and because the sheep and goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. So Jacob shows up in this land and is getting to meet his family. But take note of this portion here. You you may have missed it. Take note of Jacob's almost superhuman strength in verse 10. It says in verse 10, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. That doesn't seem mind-boggling in any way. But it's supposed to be moved by a group of shepherds, this rock. So if you read verses 2 to 3, verses 2 to 3, it says, He saw a well in the distance, three flocks of sheep and goats lay in an open field beside it, waiting to be watered, but a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. It was custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals. Afterward, the stone would be placed back over the mouth of the well. So there's this huge stone that covers this well. But Jacob just, oh, I don't know what he did, but he moved it by himself. So he must have had like, this burst of emotional energy or something after seeing Rachel. This, this girl that he's fallen in love with. You know, it's kind of like a peacock when the peacock sees the, the girl peacock and they fluff up the feathers. And I don't know if it's like a mating ritual, but he's, he's really psyched and he moves this rock. And then what does he do? So he's there and, and all, the, all the shepherds are there. And here comes Jacob. He's crazy strong. He moves this stone. and All the shepherds are like, well, what's going on here? And then what does he do? He chooses to water Laban's flock first. So Laban is who? Rachel's dad. So he's saying, she drinks first, people. He's trying to impress here. And he does, right? What happens? Verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he wept aloud because he's so happy. Okay? Now, you can't just go up to people and kiss them. It's not good. It's not good. But in this culture, a kiss, a kiss is, is like, a, it's like, a, it's like a formal symbol that doesn't really exist in Canadian culture, but in some cultures it does. I know some, some people still kiss, you know, when they see you. And I remember the first time I went to, uh, I went to France. I went to this place called Montpellier. And uh, I met my, my friends, uncles, and aunts who lived in Montpellier. They had great cheese and, and great bread and all these things and fresh meat. And I met them for the first time. And, and she did the kiss thing. I've never seen that before, never encountered it, never knew about it. And... and so she kisses me, kisses me on the cheek, and I go to kiss her on the lips. <laughs> and she's like, no, 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 right? I was like, oh, okay, so I'm learning, you know, learning. So I get, I get that, the kiss thing. But the interesting theory about this kiss, says, then Jacob kissed Rachel. This is the only point in the entire Bible where somebody kisses another woman, and it's not their wife or their fiance. So this is quite a profound moment. And he cried. Fair enough. Cried cried in happiness. Verse 12, he explained to Rachel that he was her cousin on her father's side, the son of her aunt Rebecca. So Rachel quickly ran and told her father Laban. As soon as Laban heard that his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out to meet him. He embraced and kissed him and brought him home. When Jacob had told him his story, Laban explained, you really are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we are relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me, Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. So here it describes Leah as having no sparkle in her eyes. So literally in the original language, in Hebrew, it means dull or, or flat or weak or soft. Her eyes were weak or soft. And some scholars claim that in the, in the ancient Near East, when this was written at this time, that was important. It was valuable to have sparkle or glow in your eyes. So not like literal sparkles. You know when you meet someone and you're like, that person's got fire in their eyes. They're focused. They're, they got vision. So Leah, I guess, didn't have this sparkle in her eyes, this fire. And Jacob loved Rachel because she had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Now, b- before we get to thinking like, oh, what kind of beautiful figure? We might think here, okay, slender, Um, and and whatnot but in some cultures um, that wasn't what was considered beautiful but either way Jacob loved the way she looked and he offered to work for her dad for seven years so he could marry her he offered to work for her for him for seven years so he can marry her this is going to be my criteria for people wanting to date my daughters. <laughs> you can work for me for seven years. And if you still want to marry them, then we'll talk. This is, a good, this is a good criteria. And why did he do this? Because in the ancient Near East, during this time, it was custom for potential husbands to give the bride's father a large sum of money. And that's called the bride price. Because if, if you were to take a daughter away from the family, she, she brought in a certain amount of support and, and economic value. So if you're to take our daughter, and if you live in these kind of village-like situations, to take our daughters, well, maybe we're not going to get the food that we need. We're not going to be able to do the work that we need to do. So there's this bride price. And he's willing to work up to seven years for it to marry Rachel. That is love at first sight, people. I don't know how your story and how you met your wives, if you're here right now, but (sighs) that's a long time. (laughs) Verse 19. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days Oh, oh! It's so romantic, Jacob. I've, I've told this story before, and, uh, and if you've heard it, I still think it's worth hearing again. I met this—we met this. Caitlin and I—we ran into this, this older couple, and they're celebrating their what, like fiftieth or sixtieth or seventieth anniversary? Something ludicrous like that. Ludicrous. That's good. Beautiful. It's beautiful. That's good. They're good. They're good. <laughs> Just a long time they've been married. And, uh, yeah, we're celebrating our 70th anniversary. And, and the husband's like, but it's felt like 10 minutes. And you're like, aww. And he's like, underwater. <laughs> and then she kind of like slaps him on the shoulder. But, but Jacob was literally like, he loved her so much. He loved her so much that to him it seemed like a few days. Verse 21, finally the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement. Jacob said to Laban, "Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her." Okay. We read that, that's very forthright, you know? I didn't I didn't approach my father-in-law with that sentence. This is a different culture, okay? We can't we can't read the Bible. We can't read the Bible with a 21st century lens. You just can't do that. You have to ask the first question is what did the writer mean to write to its original audience? Okay? To do otherwise is unfaithful to scripture and is just going to be crazy confusing, like the sentence. So, to sleep with someone is like a consummation of the marriage and it's like a ratifying contract. That's not the way it is now, but it was then. Moving on, verse 22. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? It's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. This is love. This is an outrageous love. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel's servant Bilhah to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. We saw we saw Jacob's strength physically. He was a strong dude, but now it's contrasted by being made weak by Laban by Laban's trickery. He's made to seem small and weak, and so Genesis 29 is actually full of irony and, and brokenness. Jacob, in earlier chapters, who deceived his father and his brother, is now being deceived. In Genesis 27, Jacob deceived his father by pretending to be his brother Esau. But now Jacob is being deceived by his uncle Laban into marrying his firstborn daughter Leah. And afterward, Laban gives Jacob permission to marry Rachel, but only after working another seven years. So for Jacob, this isn't some lesson from God like, silly Jacob, Tricks are for kids. Now you've learned your lesson. You're, you, you trick somebody, now I'm going to trick you. That's not, that's not what's going on here. It's not like payback for what he did to his brother. Rather, we see God in his control. We see his ongoing purpose of molding Jacob into the man who humbly trusts and follows him. Despite his own brokenness and the brokenness around him. God wants to teach Jacob to rely on God's strength, not on his own power, not on his own strength, not his own scheming and treachery, but on God. And later in chapter 32, Lord willing, we get there next week. God's going to take away Jacob's strength. He's going to take away Jacob's strength. Because we often see God working through people who are humble, who are broken. Are weak so it's not some revenge story another thing is God's design for marriage from the beginning from the beginning of creation has always be- been between one man and one woman so in Genesis 2 verses 24 it says this this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined his wife and the two are united into one So anything else is is beyond God's design or what he intended. Like this situation. Jacob has married now Leah and Rachel. This is a broken situation. And we'll continue to see how God continues to work through the broken lives and the decisions of his people. So this is not a text for, see, polygamy. right? If you've never read the Bible and you read this, you think... Polygamy, multiple wives is great. Sister wives, that's fun and fine. Look, Genesis 29. No, 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 no. Right from the beginning, right at the beginning, Genesis 2, God says, no, no, no. The design is between a man and a woman. So here we have Jacob's story. So despite his deceitfulness, God is fulfilling his promise that he made to him in a chapter before. In Genesis 28, verse 14, God says to Jacob, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out all in all directions, to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. That's a crazy promise. And that promise was made after he tricked his brother. <coughs> So there's this promise that God made to Jacob. And he's thinking about this. And Jacob has no idea how God is going to fulfill this promise. And we'll find out as we continue. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children. But Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. Which in Hebrew means, look, a son. For she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon. For she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi. For she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Now in this time, in this age, you, you name your child after a very important and significant situation. People do that today. Um, our kids weren't really like that for Emerald. We, I, was, I think we were just in the kitchen. And I said, How about Emerald? <laughs> Done. Done. So, but there's, there's a lot of meaning to behind, these, behind these names of these sons. What's happening is, is Leah does not feel loved by Jacob. And so she thinks, if I just have sons, the more sons that I have, then Jacob will love me. Then I, I can be pleasing to him. So Reuben, literally his name is, look, a son. And then Simeon. The Lord has heard that I was in love and give me another son. Jacob, look, look what I'm doing for you. She's desperate for affection from Jacob. And she thinks she'll get it by having children. So Leah, she's experiencing this rejection from Jacob because of her more beautiful sister, Rachel. Yet God is showing Leah that in her broken identity, her identity being, if only my husband will love me then I'll be somebody. If only I have more kids, then I'll be somebody. Or we think, if only if I'm a CEO of this company, then I'll be somebody. Or if I get that job, I'll be somebody. Or if I make this much money, I'll be somebody. We put our identity in other things other than God. Leah has this broken identity and our identity can only be satisfied in God Himself. She's so desperate in pleasing Jacob That even her childbearing, her pregnancies are part of her broken plan to be accepted and loved by Jacob. She's building her identity on her husband's love for her. If he doesn't love me, then I'm nobody. We do this. I do this. Even as a Christian, even as a pastor, I still have a a broken identity. I can put a lot of weight into the success of the Northern Collective. One of my biggest fears of the Northern Collective was that it would somewhat work. Because then I can say, hey look, it worked. Look what I did. Good, good job. And then I get invited to conferences around the world and I can say, hey look, it worked. Look at me. Look at who I am. I remember struggling with that in 2009 before I was a Christian. I put all my eggs in a basket, and I thought soccer was my way out. I thought I could be a great soccer player. People would love me. This is what I do. I go to university. I get cut from the team. Well, who am I then? Well, at least maybe I'll do good in school. My parents think, Harrison, you're born in a Chinese family and Chinese children. Your only option is to be a doctor. So I was like, OK, I will be a doctor. I fail almost every class. I'm like, OK, I'm not a good soccer player. I'm not smart according to my parents, and I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not honoring my family because I'm failing in school. I'm not really successful. I had a girlfriend at the time. It wasn't Caitlin. She broke up with me. I had all my, my identity was wrapped up in these other things until in 2009, God showed up in my life and says, Harrison, you are my son. I love you. Come home. That's what God is saying to Leah. God is saying to Leah, it doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter what you think of you. It matters what I think of you. You are my child. I see you. You were made for me. And I love you. And Leah eventually does praise God, her fourth kid. In verse 35 in chapter 29, Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah. For she said, now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Her fundamental affection, which was supposed to be towards God, was redirected to her husband. In the Bible, that is known as idolatry. Idolatry. When our affection, our affections, our love, our passions are supposed to be toward God and we put it on something else, it's called idolatry. Misguided affections. And we think, okay, wait, isn't it good to love your husband? Yes, it's good. But she was over loving her husband, putting her identity in that marriage. These are good things. But when we make good things ultimate things, when we make them like God, that's idolatry. And we do that. But God is a God of the broken, and he continues to work through that and forgive. Now this brings us to chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God? he asked. He's the one who has kept you from having children. Then Rachel told him, Take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her. She will bear children from me. And through her, I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son, Rachel named him Dan, for she said, God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. Then Bilhah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, I have struggled hard with my sister and I'm winning. Meanwhile, Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore. So she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Soon Zilpah presented him with a son. Leah named him Gad, for she said, How fortunate I am. Then Zilpah gave Jacob a second son, and Leah named him Asher, for she said, What joy is mine. Now the other women will celebrate with me. What's happening here is baby wars. (laughs) I can't have babies, so you could sleep with my servant, and you'll have babies. And she said, Well, I can't have babies, and and then they just... They just want to have more babies than each other. Baby wars is happening right now. Rachel, it's like it's like a contest. What did she say? Verse eight. Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, "I have struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning." This is ridiculous. (laughs) This is brokenness par excellence. This is horrible. They're using babies as leverage to win in this crazy broken relationship. She's trying to have more babies than her sister. Moving on. Verse 14. One day during the wheat harvest, Reuben found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel begged Leah, please give me some of of your son's mandrakes. But Leah angrily replied, wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now you will steal my son's mandrakes too? Rachel answered, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. Mandrakes, what are mandrakes? They're like a bluish flower in the winter. In the summertime, they're like a plum-sized fruit. And back in the day, people had this superstition, it was not founded in science, that it was like a love potion. So back then, people would call them love apples. So whenever you see the word mandrakes in the the Bible, you think love apples. And you can thank me for that. (laughs) Essentially, it was like an aphrodisiac. And they're using it like a bartering coin. Verse 16. So that evening, as Jacob was coming home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him. You must come and sleep with me tonight, she said. I have paid for you with some mandrakes that my son found. So that night he slept with Leah. Jacob. And God answered Leah's prayer. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a fifth son for Jacob. She named him Issachar, for she said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. Then Leah became pregnant again and gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. She named him Zebulun, for she said, God has given me a good reward. Now my husband will treat me with respect, for I've given him six sons. Later she gave birth to a daughter named her Dinah. Get that girl in there. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said, and she named him Joseph. For she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. I don't know if you've been counting, but there's been 13 children now in this baby war. Twelve sons and one daughter, born of four women. Now, if you've been at the Northern Collective any amount of time, you will know that I love God, I love Jesus, I love my wife, I love Putin, and I love genealogies. Hit it, Brent. All right, this is Jacob. (laughs) Leah, we have on the left. Rachel is the third in the blue. Zilpa, Bilhar are the servants of each. You can just read that. Those are all the kids that they had. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Nathalai. Other than the daughter, and if you've read the Bible or know anything about the Bible, why are those names significant? Who are those people? The 12 tribes of Israel, which the rest of the Bible continue to flesh out who they are. These are some of the most central people, characters, tribes in all of Scripture and is born out of a Jerry Springer episode. (laughs) Am I right? It is so broken. The whole situation is broken. The slaves and the sex and the mandrakes and everything. And Laban tricking him and... It's all broken, but God is the God of the broken. Chapter 30 concludes with how Jacob prepares for his future. I'm going to read it out and tell us what this means for us. So I'm just going to read 25 to 43 straight out. Soon after Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, please release me so I can go home to my country let me take my wives and children, for I've earned them by serving you, and let me be on my way. You certainly know how hard I've worked for you. Please listen to me, Laban replied. I've become wealthy, for the Lord has blessed me because of you. Tell me how much I owe you. Whatever it is, I'll pay it. Jake replied, You know how hard I've worked for you, and how your flocks and herds have grown under my care. You had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed through everything I've done, but now what about me? What can I start providing for my own family? When can I start providing for my own family? What wages do you want? Laban asked again. Jacob replied, don't give me anything. Just do this one thing, and I'll continue to tend and watch over your flocks. Let me inspect your flocks today and remove all the sheep and goats that are speckled and spotted, along with all the black sheep. Give these to me as my wages. In the future... When you check on the animals, you have given me my wages. You'll see that I've been honest. If you find in my flock any goats without speckles or spots, or any sheep that are not black, you will know that I have stolen them from you. All right, Laban replied, it will be as you say. But that very day, Laban went out and removed the male goats that were streaked and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, or had white patches, and all the black sheep. He placed them in the care of his own sons, who took them three days' journey from where Jacob was. Meanwhile, Jacob stayed and cared for the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took some of some fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled off strips of bark, making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that was where they mated. And when they made it in front of the white streak branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated these lambs from Laban's flock and at mating time, he turned the flock to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. This is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. Whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, Jacob would place the peeled branches in the watering troughs in front of them. Then they would mate in front of the branches, but he didn't do this with the weaker ones, so the weaker lambs belonged to Laban and the stronger ones were Jacob's. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep, and goats and female and male servants and male camels and donkeys. So he's just gathering livestock to help prepare him for his future with his 13 children, three wives. But despite all this brokenness, the polygamy, the lies, the baby wars, the desperation, the broken identities, the deception, despite all of this, God chooses to be a God of the broken. And through Leah's son, through Leah's son, the one who Jacob didn't want, who didn't have the fire in her eyes, who wasn't as pretty as Rachel, through Leah's son Judah, God's covenant promise would be fulfilled. The promise that your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and through your family, the world will be blessed through Leah's descendants would eventually lead to King David, and then King Jesus. Next slide. We've brought this up before, but essentially, when you're reading the Bible, you're following this lineage from Adam, the first man, and then this genealogy, all the way up to Abraham. And see in the third row, we have Isaac, and now we're just reading about Jacob. And now Judah has showed up in this very broken, broken situation. And from Judah will come King David. And through King David will come two lineages, which will lead to Mary and Joseph. And then to the Savior, that is Jesus Christ. The Bible is his unstoppable plan of how he's going to fulfill that promise despite broken people. In, in a book called Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Our Lord came from the tribe of Judah. In Revelation 5.5, 5, it's the last book of the Bible, it says, Stop weak, weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, and it happened. 2,000 years ago, he showed up. How is God going to reverse the curse? Through Jesus Christ, who's taken the sin of the world upon himself, the brokenness of this whole situation, the brokenness of our lives, place it upon himself to offer forgiveness, to offer you a place where there is no brokenness, there is no tears, there is no weeping, there is no pain, suffering. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, by faith alone in Jesus Christ, you have access into that kingdom. In our brokenness, God does that. And God continues to work through broken people, just like you and me, to do that. God's work is absolutely unstoppable. If it was going to get screwed up, it would probably get screwed up like right about here. Right? With Rachel and Leah and all this. God's work is unstoppable. He is the God of the broken, and He will not stop. He cannot stop. And He's welcoming us into His kingdom. So now I'd like to invite Andrew Stark, one of the elders, to, to administer uh, what we call communion for those who have entered into this, this promise, entered into this, this covenant by faith, that you're welcome to this table. And, and Andrew, he's going to come, he's going to say a few words. We're going to take communion together. We're going to sing. We're going to think about how God is with us despite our brokenness. Thanks, Andrew.